Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's industry guest is a troublemaker. He's a data scientist, quant consultant, and formerly a tenured professor. Currently, he's teaching mathematics at Concourse, a teaching community within MIT. Prior to that, he served as an economist with the Deloitte Tax. He taught working executives for over a decade. Listen up, you guys. And the media called upon him based on what's going on in the markets. We're talking to him today because currently he's using statistical and machine learning techniques to make predictions about financial markets. He's coming to us live from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Please welcome our disruptor, lecturer in mathematics at MIT, Arnav Sheth. <laughs> Hello. Very nice to see you. I love that you cause trouble. Absolutely love Thanks. it. <laughs> yes. So before we dive into this, I want you to tell us what is your number one ingredient to disruption? Troublemaking. That's just that's what I am. That's where that's the main ingredient. Unfortunately, I was a naughty kid in school and I remember causing trouble for a friend of mine, my first best friend. I think that was when I was like in a second grade. I can't remember now. And they separated us because I think I was, my theory is that I was a bad influence on him. So they split us up. They put us into separate classes. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't look like a troublemaker. You look so unassuming. I guess that's what makes the best troublemakers, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if I went around wearing a t-shirt that said troublemaker, no one would hire me. <laughs> That's true. No one would hire you. And so why do you think that is a good ingredient for disruptive innovation? I mean, to be clear, it's not like I go around looking for trouble. It's sort of the other way around. Trouble finds me. Wherever I am, I think I've, over, over the years, as I've gotten older, I think I've channeled that urge to cause trouble into doing good. So at least what I think is good for whatever community I'm in at that moment. And yeah, so I just... I try and I try and improve the status quo. Well, that does cause trouble. The, that is many for times, sure. yes, many yeah. times. That's not something many people want to hear. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say it's about twenty percent want to hear it. Eighty percent don't want to hear it. Well, I think you're being generous. I'd, you think so? I'd say, yeah, I'd say five percent, if that. You're probably right. And then even within those five, no one can really agree about what's the best way to change the status quo. So <laughs> it definitely does cause the disruptors to rise above this avid craving for agreement, right? They just have yeah. to do it yeah. what they see as best and for the greatest good. Agreed. It, yeah, it is something that I'm not going to lie, I struggle with sometimes because agreeability is something, particularly in academia where I've spent most of my life, 
uh, agreeability is something that's valued, that's cherished, that's even respected sometimes. I've seen people, highly incompetent people who are extremely agreeable, just rise up the ladder and and become very get get very high up there. Yeah. So it's not easy. It's sort of like I said, trouble finds me. It's not like I choose to do this. It's sort of I can't help myself. <laughs> well, it must be because you can do something about it. I, yeah, I mean, you say that now, and I'll take the I'll take that as a compliment, and I'll accept it. But the truth is, I've also failed. I failed it a lot. Right. It's not like it's not like I try and it's not like I succeed every time I try. Yeah. Well, that's a true disruptor. So I'll continue to give you the compliments. Let's talk uh, about this status quo thing, because you you like to cause trouble and change the status quo. And based on what you're working on now, right, making predictions for the financial markets, let's really talk about the status quo of the financial markets now. The financial markets, investors, how it's done, what's wrong, the good, the bad, the ugly, right? Yeah, I mean, so I, I guess I can interpret that question two ways. One is sort of a broader big picture question, but right now financial markets are being disrupted, right? The Fed has decided to raise interest rates, which I, I don't know how many of your listeners are investors, but certainly many of them will be homeowners or aspiring homeowners, and that's it's going to affect your mortgage payments, your mortgage payments are going to increase for the same loan, you're going to have to pay higher monthly payments. So that's, that's something that's being disrupted right now. Financial, sorry, stock markets, equity markets are, I mean, a couple of days ago, people were asking, are we in a bear market? Are we in a recession? Is a recession looming? And um, yeah, I mean, the markets are being disrupted. COVID, supply chain, disruptions, war. I mean, these are not things that are conducive to smooth functioning markets, right? So yeah, I mean, there's disruption going on there. On a larger scale, I think the financial disruptors are sort of, or at least I like to think of them as people who don't, are not, when you look at them, you wouldn't think they're, they're disruptors. You think they're really boring people, but they're sort of changing really tiny things within this large machine that's the financial market. They're sort of working on this small little cog and taking off the cog and replacing it with a sort of a shiny, new, better working, well-oiled, smoother one. And that actually has larger effects, right? It has secondary and tertiary effects. It's not just, it's not just the gears around that cog that are affected. It's the whole machine that's affected by those small changes. So yeah, so that's sort of how I view disruptions in financial markets. Well, it's kind of like the tipping point. You have enough small changes then there becomes right. a big change, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to go back to this thing. You said the financial markets are being disrupted. And yes, we have a lot of investors that listen to this and business leaders that invest. I do know, and I'm sure many of our leader, leaders and listeners do know that the interest rates are rising, right? And you mentioned supply chain issues. This has definitely been a big issue and wars. Yep. Now, I feel like we live in a war economy, like our history <laughs> always has wars going on. It's almost like that is how we live, right? Or that is how whoever decides we have wars <laughs> sure, <laughs> determines sure. our economy, right? So I know it can be disruptive negatively at the time, but that seems to be ongoing all of the time, right? But 
a part of all this, it makes it very hard to predict the market. Yeah, I mean, even in a non-war state, it's hard. To, <laughs> it's hard to predict the market. Right. But you're right. I mean, I guess you're absolutely right. For the last fifty plus years, well, seventy plus years, I guess now, there's always been some kind of war going on, off and on. Maybe not continuously. Fortunately, not in our backyard. And there are a lot of people who profit and gain from war, not monetarily and otherwise. So there's a lot of people whose vested interests. So again, I'm making trouble here. I'm pretty sure by saying this, but yeah, let's make trouble. Uh, <laughs> there are vested interests. You know, I'm an sure. academic, so my my troublemaking is also pretty conservative. So yeah. it's there are people who have a lot of vested interests in keeping war going, right? And it's in their benefit to keep war going. However, this particular war is sort of unlike the war that's been going on for the last 20 years, the, the quote unquote war on terror. This one is a little different, right? It wasn't engineered by the U.S. It was unexpected. I, for one, certainly didn't predict it. In fact, I'll say this is one of the areas where I got it like way wrong, where I, the Wednesday before Putin attacked, I said, he's not going to do it. And on Thursday, he attacked. And I got texts from friends saying, you know. You were like, wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's a weird one. Also, Ukraine is, a, is in a very strategic location. There's, I'm not exactly sure, but there's a large proportion of wheat that comes out of Ukraine. There's other commodities that uh, the world depends on uh, Ukraine for. So this is a little different. It's a little different in that sense. Uh, that said, however, for financial markets, it's just another day on the markets, right? Fortunately for us in the US, the markets are still functioning in the West in general. Yeah, going back to your original question, does it, you know, what, where, did you ask me to predict, make a prediction or the general state of prediction? Sorry, I forgot your question. Well, uh, I mean, we do have wars. We've had wars for the past decades and decades, right? That should be pretty predictable, right? We're going to have a war, right? Okay. And okay. Prediction seems to be very subjective. And I know that you're working on statistical and machine learning techniques to make it more predictive. And I'm interested in finding out about that. Sure. But it's also the markets are also based on confidence, right? Yeah. And yep. that has to do with, I think, I don't know, psychological profiles of investors, right? Sure. sure. I've talked to certain disruptors that really have figured out how to predict. Well, they say they have the real psychological mindset of investor. I mean, they may say that they're in it for the long haul and they don't get freaked out and when things rise and fall, but when it does happen, the anxiety creeps in and they are able to determine if that investor truly yep. is not that way, right? Yep, yep. But I guess my so, question so, uh, is- can, can I stop you there one second? Yeah. Um, you're right, you know, that wars happen all the time. But each war is different and each war has different implications, right? On different, there, I mean, the, uh, the fallout effects, the consequences of each war are different. For example, the war in Afghanistan had little to no impact on the way markets function in the US. And unless you're in some esoteric area that is heavily reliant on something that Afghanistan produces, which I honestly don't know anyone who does that, but you're probably in the minority anyway. This one is a little bit more disruptive, and it has also precipitated other fears, right, in geo in the geopolitical scene. I mean, we have Biden was in Japan yesterday or this week, earlier this week, and he's sort of trying to gain support from all the allies that we have in Asia. And while he was doing that, China and Russia had a joint uh, military, quote unquote, test right off the coast of Japan. 
and you know they were sort of within they were within the rules and all that they didn't break any laws it's sort of like me you know, we let's say you and i are neighbors and we don't have a fence and we have an agreement my dog's not gonna i, I don't know if i can say this on your podcast not gonna pee on your side of the lawn yes you can uh, say it <laughs> okay okay all right and then my dog comes in and i train my dog to come and just be like right on the edge there and you're, 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 you're drinking your morning coffee and you look at it from your window and you're like, is that guy up to trouble again? No good. And I just bring all this up because we, we might be for a bigger one. And this might involve all of the world powers, right? It really is sort of this Ukraine thing has really precipitated a lot of Ukraine plus COVID has precipitated a lot of what's the word I'm looking for. Basically, people have made a 180 on globalization, right? Whereas globalization was this big, it was the Kool-Aid, everyone drank it, it was oh, it's great. Push. Yeah, and now the general sort of consensus on that has has turned around. So this, it, this is very different. Each war is different. Each sort of crisis is different. And the question is, how do we manage it? And how do we, uh, what can, well, so for me personally, it's like, what can we as investors, how can we as investors make the best of the crisis? Right. Are there certain factors or common denominators of all wars that can be put into machine learning or that you could, I don't know, I'm not you, I don't know what you know. No, no, I know, I know. Right? I wish, I, I, I laugh because- like there's 10 factors and <laughs> each one has a scale and this war, you know, can predict this and this war can predict this and I, I don't know. Is it yeah, that? I wish, I wish, I wish I could have a little black box and I just put in like five things and it spits out Yes, this is how, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. No, unfortunately, no, I don't think, I mean, you know, there's sort of this, uh, at least, so I don't know about your audience, but at least amongst the people that I deal with, and particularly in Silicon Valley, where I lived for 15 years, I lived in San Francisco before I moved here to the East Coast. There was this sort of, it was in the air. People sort of, there was this belief that all oh, these models, uh, technology is going to change everything. It's sort of this, like, like we had in the dot-com boom, that these mathematical models, these machine learning tools are going to predict everything. They're going to change the world. They're going to, and I think there is a grain of truth there. It's definitely very powerful tools. We have computational power that we've never had before. But at the same time, you know, it's not magic. And um, I do believe- There's be a variable because of the human element, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's, I mean, particularly in finance, I mean, if we're talking about image processing, that's a very different thing. We're talk so machine learning is used for image processing. It's used for a whole bunch of different, it has a whole bunch of different applications. And the, you're right, in finance in particular, there's always the human element. There's, we cannot predict the way humans will behave as groups, as in large groups, right? We just cannot. It's it's impossible. So, for me personally, it's like how can you be nimble enough to adapt, right? I think that's the challenge, and so, and sometimes it is it's harder, and some days it's harder, and some days it's easier. But how can we sort of adapt and quickly? What do we need to change in our models to to make them work best? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole financial industry is built upon being able to try to predict the markets, <laughs> right? Yeah, to, so, to an extent. To, to an some extent, extent and yeah. to some extent, some are successful. Uh, to some extent, some aren't successful. What's the status quo there? Is it just a crystal not ball? Successful. Yeah. No, the status quo is not successful. I mean, most academics, I mean, this, this is very well known, at least in, in academia, that most of these guys, most... Uh, asset managers uh, fail to perform and there's just a handful i mean literally i'd say probably a very small number of people who can truly 
beat the market consistently over long periods of time. It's hard. It's not easy. It requires skill. It requires discipline. And it's a full-time job. Most of us, I'd say, including myself, I mean, even though I, I do this a lot, I'd say for most of us, I mean, I'll tell you, my retirement is in the U.S. stock market. I don't play with my retirement funds, right? So the, the best investment you can make, and this is something that anyone who has even very little experience in financial markets will tell you that the U.S. markets over the last, I'd say, 100 years, uh, we've had, we have reasonably good data over the last 100 years. And I'd say you know, they've returned around 10 to 12%, depending on how you measure it and who you right. talk to and all that stuff. But that's, that's a very, I mean, I'd say that's amazing. That's a miracle. <laughs> on average, it's 10 to 12%. Now, you know, some years it's up 40%. Some years it's down 40%. It's not consistently 10%. I don't want to make it sound like it's uh, it's like a, a treasury bond or something. But that's where you should be putting all your money. And that's something that is predictable. Now, you're asking about the status quo. Not many people can do better than that. There's very few people who can do better than that. And even those who, I know several who have done phenomenally well, well enough that they can retire. But they've all, when you catch them after a few drinks or in a quiet moment, they'll tell you that I had, so one of my friends, he's a foreign exchange trader. He said in 2000, I think it was, uh, is it eight or nine? I think he said, I had the best week in one week. He said, I had the best week ever that gave him more returns than any year in his entire career in trading. And he basically is now retired. And I asked him, I said, did you know what you were doing? He said, no. I mean, just to an extent, right? I mean, he, I think he knew what he was doing to an extent, but the level at which he was successful, I don't think he could have predicted even himself. He was smart enough to quit while he was ahead. Not everyone has that discipline to do that. Uh, there are others who do consistently well over longer periods of time, months, maybe even years. But then, uh, for example, right now, there's quantitative funds that, that have done extremely well because the Fed has been raising rates and the stock markets have been crashing. They've been doing well. But those funds ha were doing ter terribly, you know, when rates were low and stock markets were booming. So yeah, so I mean, it's, the status quo is not good. <laughs> to be, it's not it's good. very hard to be unpredictable, the and people yeah. can't repeat the affluence by figuring out what caused it, so they could do it again. Yeah, yeah. I'd say. I mean, the, the, that's the thing about what I love about finance is that you can sort of transfer that to life, right? I mean, it's not just finance. That's true, probably for most of us. For most of us who've had. Not me, but for the other people I've met who've had phenomenal success, who've been able to retire early. And I call it exiting the wheel of capitalism. Like in Buddhism, you exit the wheel of life when you gain enlightenment. So, right. so when you make enough money, you, you can get off that hamster wheel. And you talk to them and they themselves will tell you that they just got lucky. It's a, it's a specific series of events that just sort of coincided in that particular moment in time. And that resulted in, in their and super boom. success. There yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. So based off of all of that, based off the status quo, why are you concentrating your troublemaking into statistical and machine learning techniques <laughs> to predict the financial markets? What do you know or think or believe that the rest of us do not? Oh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I know anything, but I do believe that. Well, so so for me, I really enjoy it. What's the word? It tickles my fancy. I love it. And this is what I do. I, I can't think of myself doing anything else. I, I, I love playing with models. I love crunching numbers. Tinkering. Uh, Tinkering, <laughs> exactly. Looking so what at part data. of that needs yeah. to be disruptive? What, what part of uh, that do you think really can use those techniques 
to predict think, better? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I'd say, so So maybe we should redefine disruption here in this context. Um, Let's do it. I'd say disruption for me would be if maybe looking a data set or working on a model and I come up with some really, for me at least, non-intuitive, surprising results. And I think that would be, you know, that would be a disruption for me. So I'm working on this, I'm working with a couple of students on this one project where I'm looking at corporate bond data. And I would be very excited if we get some non-intuitive results from that. I don't want to, I don't want to. Uh, and what do you mean by non-intuitive? Let's help me yeah, understand. So you look at a data set and you, so for me, the way it works is you, you look at the data set, you get to know the data set, right? It's like people, right? you get to know the data set. And then you expect the data set to behave in a certain way when you apply certain models to it. And then suddenly when you apply a certain model, it behaves in a different way. And that's surprising, right? So it's like when you've known someone for 30 years and they tell you, hey, I saw this B-movie horror movie yesterday and this really, this really bad movie and I really loved it. I was like, oh, I didn't know you liked those kinds of movies. And, and they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's what I do. It's my guilty pleasure. I didn't tell you because I was feeling too guilty, but yeah, whatever. But it's a surprise for you. Like, oh, that's totally not, you're like the staid person, very conservative. And you like these, you know, whatever movie that's, that the kids are watching these days. Right, right. <laughs> I guess I sound, I'm sounding older than I really am. But uh, <laughs> I know Top Gun uh, is coming out this weekend. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right, so, yeah. So we old people can watch all the old, all Tom Cruise getting older with us. I like it. I like it. <laughs> That's right. Except he looks, he still looks the same with all the Botox. I know that, he but, does. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, yes, that's what I mean. Like if you, you poke and prod it and then, hey, this reacted in a very different way. So, yeah. And why did you pick por- corporate bonds? Oh, because a friend of mine who works in the markets and is way smarter than I am about markets told me that this would be a good. So there's this particular data set that not many people know about, and that's the one I'm using. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of exciting. It's sort of an area that it's not very sexy in academia. And so, yeah, so see, I'm causing trouble again, right? Like I'm doing something that these, nobody else wants to touch. There's probably well, a good the reason. the most effective is the least sexiest, you know? Well, you know, like, so there's a reason why it's not sexy, right? Like, there's probably a good reason. There's a lot of smart people who could very easily be working on this thing along with me, but they're not. And I got a question. I got to wonder, right? Like, why aren't they doing it? It's not going to stop me, but I got to take, sometimes I do wonder, like, so anyway, yeah. If I'm successful, then then we can, then I can sort of add all those things where, you know, we must must walk the path less trodden or whatever. But right now I'm not there yet. Yeah, I get it. So we know that the status quo is not working. We know the status quo is not predictable. A handful have been able to do that, but it's still not rocket science, right? And I believe for anything, you're going to have a degree of unpredictability, right? But what is the ideal scene? What do you feel like should be happening with the financial markets with our ability to use machine learning and statistical learning techniques, like what should be happening and how should the market be disrupted? What does that look like? I don't know if that's the right question, because if we start going down that path of what should be happening, then kind of imposing our own view on it. And I think that's one of the skills that makes us bad investors. The markets are what they are. They're going to do what they're going to do. And whether or not we think they should be doing something 
or not, they're going to be doing it anyway. It's better to, I think at least, and again, this is easy for me to say, harder for me to do, but it's better for us to at least try to accept what the markets are and where they're going and what they're doing rather than try to impose our own view on it. So if you're not imposing your own view on it, which makes sense to me, how are you using statistical and machine learning techniques to better so, predict the market? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example of something that I published already. I think, okay, so let me back up a bit. So I think one of the ways in which you can predict markets is, and again, this is not this is not a blanket statement, right? This is in a very specific situation at a very specific time. We do have a legal uh, disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what is it? What is it on our financial statements? Like this is, you know, past returns are not indicative of future performance, right? Right. No, but I say this because it's not. A, it's less a disclaimer and more a caveat. Like, I don't want people to think that it's possible, and I, I, I do see that a lot. I do see people who find something that works in one area and then try to apply it to another area, and then it fails, right? So you should. That's something that you should be aware of. That just because it's success. I'm not saying that it's not going to be successful, but it's something that if it's successful in one area, it may or may not be successful in the other, and you should be ready for that. One thing that I found was predictable is, I guess you can call it herd behavior, for lack of a better word. Yes. Um, that that we we sort of we as humans do somewhat predictable things in droves and herds, and then if you can find ways to exploit that in markets, I think that's a winning strategy. So. One thing I found was, and I'm trying, I'll try not to get into the weeds here, but there, there is a benchmark in foreign exchange markets that turns out is used by people who buy and sell stocks in Hertz. And one of the things I did was, well, me and a student of mine, we, that benchmark is released at the same time every day. It's not supposed to be used for stock trading, but it is. It ends up being used for stock trading for, well, the real reason that it's, and this is speculation on my part, but the real reason why it's used for stock trading is it's a cover your ass type thing where, you know, that benchmark is there. And if you come to me with a stock trade order or something, and I'll, I'll wait until 11 a.m. Eastern time when that benchmark is released to put that order through. And if you complain to me about that, I'll say, hey, this is the way the industry practices, right? So I'm, don't blame me. This is the industry, right? So I'm, so my ass is not on the line here. And because of that mentality, and because there's a whole bunch of people who act, think and act that way, you can actually predict uh, the benchmark, the direction in which exchange rates will go just around that benchmark in that small period of time around that benchmark in 11 a.m. Eastern time. And we did it and it was successful. So, yeah, I mean... Um, and you wrote you know, a white paper on this, is that right? Yeah, well, it was a peer-reviewed publication. So yeah. um, it's... I guess in academia, we like to fool ourselves that those are, you know, uh, we're, we're smarter than others because we, we do peer review. And I can well, get I into a, a bunch of examples. That write peer reviews, like in publications. And yes, you do like them very much. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. And I could give you a whole bunch of reasons why and how peer review does not work. But yeah, anyway, like to fluff up our feathers, and make ourselves think we're smarter. So that was one factor that was successful. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're working on another factor that you think is going to be successful in corporate. Um, is that right? Well, I don't know if it's going to be successful. You <laughs> think it, that, you hope it is. I'm hoping it will be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping it will be, but I'm not, we just started working on this. So it's in the very early stages and I don't know if it, 
will or will not be. There's another project that's that we were talking about before we started the podcast that I think is closer to the end and I haven't gotten any real results out of it yet, but that I believe will will be successful, I think. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. can you I, say what that is? It's quite technical. It's do you know what factor investing is by any chance? No, I don't. Okay. But you're now okay. you're going so, to tell me. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. So I'll explain. So factor investing is sort of this thing in the investment management space where instead of investing, I mean, it's controversial, but good. So there's something like think of this, think of growth stocks versus value stocks. Right. You have in the old days when I started teaching 20 years ago, growth stocks were sort of these old, boring, staid stocks like Ford. These were the examples I used 20 years ago. Right. So Ford and GM that are sort of slow and steady growth, not super sexy, nothing like that. And in those days, the examples I used for value. Sorry. Sorry. My bad. I was. Ford and GM are value stocks, right? So they mm-hmm. provide long-term value. Whereas yeah. you have these sexy growth stocks, where, which are, in those days, the examples I used were Microsoft and Apple. These were sexy growth stocks. Now, Microsoft and Apple are the value stocks and probably Tesla or, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd say Apple might still be value, but, uh, sorry, growth, growth, getting the two mixed up. Uh, I only bring that up because growth and value are actually factors. And there's different ways uh, so I just gave you two examples of growth and value, right? So there's different ways in which you can define growth and value. They're sort of similar. The definitions are similar. But factor investing is when I, I'm a fund that specializes in growth stocks and I'm a fund that specializes in value stocks. And so I will invest in those factors. So instead of choosing a specific stock, I'll choose a specific factor, right? And then there are, so I'll invest in an ETF or a mutual fund that specializes in that factor, for example. Got it. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at some of those factors that are fairly standard. So there are academic factors. There are some factors that academics have come up with. And I'm, I'm looking at the behavior of those factors across different business cycles. And through that, coming up with a kind of an algorithmic trading strategy that, that sort of automatically pinpoints where we are in the business cycle. So cycles go up and down. Right now, we're, they're saying that we're at the peak and we're sort of, we've turned around the inflection point and we're somewhere down here and we're going to go down all the way into sort of recession territory. And then you know that's when you buy stocks and then you wait for them to grow up again. And so where exactly are we in the cycle? There's models that allow you, or at least that's what we're trying to do predict exactly where we are on that cycle. And if we are, let's say I can predict we're exactly here on the cycle, then what do we buy when we're here on the cycle? What factors do we invest in when we're here on the cycle? And I'm trying to see if I can automate that, if you will. Is that? I love it. It makes total sense to me. Okay. Yeah. If it makes sense to me, I know it makes sense to my listeners. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. I love it. All right. So it seems to me that a majority of investors, now, I do know, working in the financial industry, that we have many self-investors. I mean, people that the majority of people that invest on their own, right? There's only 20% or so that use financial companies, right? Investment companies. Uh, I, I don't know, actually. So that, that number has gone down. It has was it? higher. It reached a peak. In the industry, we call them retail investors, the mom and pop, the ones, the day traders, they call retail investors. And that reached a peak in uh, during the pandemic. And I think it was like about 40% was the highest it ever got. And then I think it's back down again. So it's roughly, in terms of the uh, vol, I'm not talking about the number of people, I'm talking about the volume of stocks traded. 
Got it. Um, The whole GameStop thing and Robin Hood and all that made people, made it very easy for people to buy and sell shares. And so that, and you know, that and the the checks and the fact that we were sitting around doing nothing. I actually had, I had a really smart colleague of mine who got caught up in that. And he texted me saying, should we just buy games? Should I just take my 401k, cash it out and buy GameStop? And I was like, no, please don't do that. (laughs) No, don't do that. (laughs) Well, that's very good data. But the point is we have a lot of people that do it on their own. There are a lot of people. And it's only increasing. It's only increasing. And I agree. I have heard this and even talking to you, right? There's this almost like this uneducated blanket wide wish or desire or hope or this is going to happen one day with technology that we're going to be able to predict the markets right but you said something very interesting in the beginning of the podcast and then talking about the different projects that you've worked on or working on it really is taking one cog in the whole mechanism the whole wheel and that small cog creating something that is disruptive innovative and changes the market changes the outcome or changes the mindset or how you actually predict the market, right? It's never, and that's going to, I guess that's going to be ad infinitum. I mean, you do another one and then you do another one and you do another one. And this eventually becomes this gradient tipping a point where we have somewhat mastered many parts of the market that would help us predict the market. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, no. Wait, wait. I mean, so look, let's say I come in, I change the cog, I get very rich and I retire, wishful thinking here. But let's say I do that. And then you come in and you change some other cog and so on and so forth. And then over time, we have a whole new machine, right? Piece by piece, the whole machine and it changes. changes everything. It changes everything. And you said there's some tipping point where you know, the whole machine doesn't need to be changed. But that tipping point comes when enough of the machine gets changed, where we all agree that, hey, it's practically a new machine. Let's call it. Let's just call it a new machine. But by that time, my cog that I changed is now old again. And there's going to be some other Arnav who comes in and says, hey, this cog needs to be changed with a shinier, newer, better, well-greased cog. Another, you know, never ends. So it's a new iteration, never ends. I love that. That's actually realistic. That is what's going to happen. And you know what? We're always going to be focused on it. And we're going to be talking about prediction of the markets forever. So guess what? You're never out of a job. (laughs) Well, so listen, I don't predict markets. That's that's Kramer's Kramer's domain on MSNBC. I don't know. Am I dating myself? uh, (laughs) Does Does anyone watch Kramer anymore? Yeah, there's enough. Now there's enough blogs and uh, subreddits out there. You have all these crazy kooks who think they can predict the markets and they have a system and it's like horse racing. Everybody has a system. I don't think, I don't think that's, uh, that's possible. I don't think that's possible. But like I said, you can only sort of do it in, for a short period of time in a very specific area. And then you can't keep the genie in the bottle. Eventually it's going to come out. And that's how market, that's the other thing about financial markets. And maybe this might be specific to finance, but I don't know. Uh, once it's no longer your secret, once everybody knows it, it disappears. It's not a profitable opportunity anymore. Right. It becomes a commodity, right? It's not profitable. Um, yep. Yep. All the excess returns and profit driven down. Yep. So supply and um, demand. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Got it. Makes <laughs> sense. So you have a couple of projects that you're working on now. Do you have other things in the works or you're getting these done first? 
no, no, I just, just, I'm just going to get these done. Yeah. And then you'll find out the next thing to be a troublemaker on, right? Yeah. So I guess this is something that really frustrates me being an academic is sort of being in the ivory tower. I don't, as opposed to being on the front lines in the, if you will, war on markets, since we were talking about war earlier, I don't, I'm not in the front lines and I don't see what it wearing blinders. So what I do is I just have a lot of friends who are practitioners in the market. And I wait for them to come to me with ideas. So this FX idea was was a collaborative project with a practitioner, the, uh, the factor thing. investing. Yeah. yeah, the factor exchange, the factor investing project was another collaboration with a practitioner. This corporate bond thing, the idea was brought to me by a practitioner. So yeah, so I mean, I, yeah. I like to work on projects which are very practitioner focused, which kind of, again, makes me a troublemaker in academia, which is sort of the state conservative world. I like to get my hands dirty in the real world, whereas other academics, they like to think in abstract It's almost heresy what you're doing. You know that, right? Yeah, I know. I'm on the border. I'm on the border of being- You're on the edge. You're on the fringe. Always on the edge. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What was Arnav like as a little boy growing up? And then how did you get on this path where you- you said, that's it. I'm, I'm going to do something about this, or I'm going to be a troublemaker. There's got to be a better way. Oh, I was always a troublemaker. I chose math because to be perfectly honest, it was the one thing I knew would piss my dad off. So that was, I guess my first disruption was I disrupted my, like it was, I come from a family of medical doctors. And so for me, it was not, what are you going to do when you grow up? It was, when do you start medical school? And I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. There's a lot. So in India, you start medical school right after high school and you commit. And it's like the British system. I just couldn't do it. There was a lot of cramming, no thinking, a lot of putting your head down and hours of cramming and doing what you're told. And I just, that's not me. That's, I can't do that. So yeah, so I was like, first thing I got to do is get out of there. So I convinced my dad to pay for my ticket here. I got a scholarship at a school over here. And then I, ha- I actually, funnily enough, I actually failed math in high school in, in India. Uh, I love because, it. Because I was a med- medical, so I was focusing on the medical stuff and math was like not important to me. So I have some interesting stories around that, but uh, you know, we're kind of running out of time. But so I came here and I, ha- I met this professor who totally, I guess, blew my mind and disrupted my world and showed me how amazing and beautiful and seductive math can be. And I loved, I just, I fell in love with it. And I'm also very pragmatic. So there, there, there was that risk of me sort of going into this abstract world of math, but I resisted that temptation and kept my feet. I, I think that was a good decision. I kept my feet on the ground and sort of, I said, what, what is one way in which I can use these models in the real world for, for the benefit of the world rather than just coming up with these abstract ideas. Now, I have a lot of respect for the mathematicians who do that. It, it is very beautiful, but it, it doesn't sort of, my value system is not that. I met this other econ professor who showed me the Black-Scholes options pricing model, which maybe some of your listeners have heard about, maybe not. And that just blew my mind. That's it. Oh, wow. I can apply this to finance and maybe even get rich. So yeah, I got the first part right. I applied it to finance. haven't quite figured out the second part yet. <laughs> but you know, maybe after this podcast, who knows? Maybe after this podcast, absolutely. Well, now I know how you got on the track to mathematics. And is your dad still pissed off about it? No, we've made up. we made up. <laughs> <laughs> he's, very, I, he's very proud of me. That's so, awesome. Uh, of course yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah. What do you do outside of lecturing and these particular, pro- like what are your crazy passions? What are you going to do this summer that's fun? 
Oh, so I am very much into music. As you can see, I have, so those are the tablas, the Indian drums. So I'm, I'm, I just started learning. Uh, I learned Indian classical music when I was very young and stopped for a long time. And now I'm getting back into it. So, are those so that's, guitars behind you as well? Those are guitars and I have some more, like, I don't know, I have two more down there. Oh, I see so I, that. I have a lot of guitars. So I'm learning Indian classical guitar. So that's something. So it's Indian classical music is something that it's sort of, a, it's a very, for Americans, it's very esoteric. But I'd argue that more, in, in terms of sheer numbers, more people listen to Indian classical music than Western classical music. Indian, you know, I've never listened to Indian classical music. Now, I was... It's, uh, it's like whenever you hear the sitar and all the, like all those movies that show those people getting stoned and those hippies dancing around the sitar. Oh, that's, that's Indian, Indian classical, classical music. music. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, it's desecration, but, you know... I'll, that's yeah, terrible. Okay. We Americans are terrible. <laughs> I know, you guys. You Americans. You barbarians. We're barbarians. It's true. Well, I'm going to listen to it. You know, I was trained as a classical pianist for 11 years in oh, the wow. Western classical growing up, right? But I'm going to have I'd, to... I'd say, I'd say start with Ravi Shankar. He's the guy who brought Indian classical music to the West through George Harrison. He's the guy who trained George Harrison. Oh, really? Beatles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at that. So what are you doing? Yeah. Are you taking lessons or you're learning? I'm taking how to lessons. Hmm. I'm taking lessons. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love albums you know, I love... in the future. Oh no, 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 no. I just like learning it and tinkering and playing and that's my thing. And then, you know, then you reach a point where maybe yeah. I'll perform somewhere. I don't know. But when I'm ready, that's, that's awesome. I think that's so yours. Where do that's you play Indian classical music as a performance? to uh, other Indian classical music aficionados. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know a Hollywood producer, so if you want to make one for one of these like stoner oh, wow. movies, then I'll let you know. <laughs> I will uh, I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Arnav, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, I'm very easy to find. Just Google my name, Arnav Shep, A-R-N-A-B-S-H-E-T-H. You'll find that. I'm on Twitter. I'm not very active on there, but you can DM me there. LinkedIn. On LinkedIn you are. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn is very easy to find. I'm pretty active there. And yeah. And if they want to uh, read the peer journal review that you wrote, you can oh, send them a uh, link or is that? I can send you a link. Yeah, okay. I, I can send you a link or, or they can contact me and I'll send them a link. Yeah. They can contact you, send me a link and I'll make sure it's in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, perfect. I'll do that. And is there any last word that you'd like to tell our listeners? Anything about the markets? Anything about predicting the markets? Oh, any la any word of wisdom or don't believe the hype, don't drink the Kool-Aid, what would you say? Yeah, the last one. Don't drink, okay. don't believe the hype, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Well, the hype is the S&P 500. Buy and hold the S&P 500. Buy and hold. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to do better. I mean, numerous studies have shown this. Unless you're special, you're not going to do better. So, uh, yeah, it's hard. It's very hard to beat the market, the U.S. Awesome. market. Yeah. Good advice. Thanks very much, Arnav. Uh, thank you so much, Carla. This was so much fun. Yes, it was a ton of fun. All right. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Mm -hmm.
Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.